Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research Centennial Commemorations, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the Study Group for Minority History. It has been made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaboration. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. I'm Olana Palko, the co-convener of the study group. And today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Yulia Buiski, a cultural anthropologist affiliated with the Institute of History of Ukraine in Kyiv and a co-founder of the NGO, the Center for Applied Anthropology, and Professor Catherine Vanner from the Pennsylvania State University. Yulia, Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Thank Elena, you. thank you very much for having us here. It's a pleasure to be here and to be able to talk about different interesting things. Uh, Kathy, welcome to the podcast. So nice to be here with you. Uh, can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in the particular aspect of history, which means history of Ukraine, religions in Ukraine, and generally Ukraine? Well, I came to Ukraine via, via literature, via literature from the region. Um, and I studied uh, Russian in high school, which is unusual in the United States. And then I studied abroad in the Soviet Union. And so the first time uh, I was in the region was in 1980, right after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So that is quite some time ago. Um, and during that time, I traveled throughout Russia and uh, throughout Ukraine. And so early on, I recognized the differences in uh, language and in mentality and in landscape and in cultural practices and many, many, many other um, aspects of the differences that became readily apparent to me. Um, of course, at that time, it, um, it was very difficult to conduct anthropological research, meaning long time fieldwork uh, in, in the Soviet Union. And so when I applied to uh, begin graduate study at Columbia, I applied saying that I wanted to study uh, in Brazil and I wanted to do ethnographic research um, in South America on liberation theology, as a matter of fact. And then of course, it was uh, a, quite a fortuitous moment. I started graduate school in 1989, which was a momentous year. And of course, everything began changing. And in, in, I realized there was an odd quirk to my bio, biography. I had spent uh, a considerable amount of time in the Soviet Union um, and I knew Russian already and I had some sense of the history of the region and other aspects of the region. And so when it came time to actually choose a topic, I chose Ukraine right from the beginning because um, I knew that um, American or Western, I would even say academics made a mistake by focusing almost exclusively on not just Russia, but even Moscow and the Kremlin and Kremlin policies. Um, they 
accepted the idea of a totalitarian regime and as if uh, when some order or decree came out of Moscow that it would be slavishly followed throughout uh, the Soviet Union. And I knew for a fact by virtue of my own personal experience that this was not the case. And I was highly aware of the tremendous diversity within the Soviet population. So uh, right from the start, I chose to do research on Ukraine. And that is a decision that I have never regretted. And I have also never revised it. And I have devoted my entire career to doing ethnographic research in Ukraine. Thank you, Kathy. Yeah, I know recently I have been reading your book, Burden of Dreams, rereading actually. And I remember what um, overwhelmed me, your experiences when traveling across Ukraine in trains and the way how you face different challenges, pretending that you're from Latvia or Lithuania, as I remember. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask why, why had you to do this actually? Why didn't you just say, I'm from America, I'm researching Ukraine? What was oh, it's hard to imagine what, um, what, what, what it was like back in the 1990s. It was a period of acute uh, economic crisis. Um, and uh, there was a tremendous um, pressure on, on Ukrainians. I mean, people literally didn't have enough to eat. Um, uh, I, I'm from New York City, and I think I'm pretty savvy in terms of street smarts. Um, but during that period, I was robbed four times in Ukraine. Um, <laughs> so and, sorry to hear it. <laughs> well, it was just uh, the way it was then. Mm -hmm. um, and in particular, train travel was, um, was perilous for a great many Ukrainians even traveling um, because it was clear that uh, many people were facing shortages of all kind. I mean, I, it was during that time that people had their um, their pickled cucumbers stolen from their summer homes and, uh, you know, theft was really at that level. And um, I think for a great many um, Ukrainians, this was enormously destabilizing. I mean, coming from the United States, it's a fairly violent society. I'm very aware of um, that one can easily become the, uh, victim of crimes, but for many Ukrainians, this was really a, a, a whole new experience. And in particular, most of my friends were tremendously protective of me um, as a foreigner and sort of announcing that you were American was, um, was akin to announcing that you had lots of dollars in your pocket, which wasn't always the case for me. But um, train travel was uh, tremendously difficult, especially as a woman traveling alone and not advertising the fact that I was American made it, uh, made it easier. Less dangerous, I see. I yes, it was just, it was, it was just, <laughs> it was just easier on many, many, in, uh, in many respects. But still, the contexts you describe in your book are very warm. All those uh, sharing of space, sharing the road, all these talks with different people in trains to Kharkiv, Lviv, and to Moscow, to Kiev, all of them, they are very warm. That actually warmed my heart as well, that you were perceived very well in these trains, despite all this. All this uh, I think I've, I've always been warmly received in Ukraine. And... Um, um, I've always uh, thoroughly enjoyed doing ethnographic research and I've never had people be 
um, unwilling to speak or in any way to be told or rude. I mean, it's always been a very um, um, interesting and engaging uh, experience. And what was your first encounter with religion in Ukraine? How do you remember it? Well, um, during the uh, 1990s, for example, I was doing research on um, revisiting uh, Ukrainian history and how people began to, um, with greater access to archival material and, and other kinds of historiographies that were printed abroad, people began to think about um, uh, their own history differently. Things like the Holodomor, uh, the, the Ukrainian famine were, uh, and Chernobyl, for example, those were two of the biggest issues that were, uh, mm-hmm. if they were even mentioned in Soviet um, historiographies, they were glossed over, they were um, not at all fully explored. And those were two events that were um, now being um, entirely re-examined. And so this was of great interest uh, to me. Um, and yet having sort of embarked on that as a research project, I couldn't help but notice that every time I flew to Ukraine, um, I was surrounded by missionaries who were arriving. Um, The 1990s was a time of tremendous um, uh, uh, religious renaissance is the phrase that's often used uh, in Ukraine. Um, Religious resurgence is often the phrase that's used in the West to describe this period. But the key point is that there was tremendous interest um, in all things religious. And so um, I've always followed um, the interests of of Ukrainians on the ground and what was of interest to them was what inevitably became of interest to me. So it was only a matter of time before I switched the the focus of my research to aspects of religion. I understood it was important to Ukrainians, so then it became important to me. Now you can observe the whole process of uh, the way how religion has been transformed and changed and influenced the identity formation process and political process in Ukraine through 30 years already. That's exactly right. And it actually, it dovetails with your, with your research, which also looks at how religion and religious practices also affect self-perceptions and the formation of communities uh, in Ukraine as well as abroad. As you know, I have been thinking a lot about actually what is minority? This is the topic, the main topic of our conversation because I research Greek Catholics. And before starting my research, I have been always thinking about Greek Catholics as minority in numbers because they are the minority in Ukraine. It's like, uh, five millions of Greek Catholics. On the whole scale of Ukraine, it's a minority, like 60 and something percentage of Orthodox. In Poland, there are 55 thousands on 38 millions, so they are the minority. But in terms of their representations, in terms of uh, their influence, their impact on society, they could hardly be called a minority. I think that's one thing that um, anthropology and specifically ethnography as a research method or as a tool, um, it can help us see um, what actually constitutes a a minority. I mean, the discipline itself doesn't offer any kind of definition as to what a minority is, but it offers a means 
so that we can see how people on the ground might either feel themselves to be a minority um, in the sense that they're perhaps perceived as different, threatening, strange, or, or some other qualifier. But ethnography helps us see that um, while a group might numerically be in the minority, it can have all kinds of influence and it can have um, the ability to shape uh, institutions, cultural beliefs, and and all, and forge connections beyond national borders. And in this sense, it gives a group that perhaps is numerically small, uh, tremendous influence and even political power in a particular context. I do, because um, yes, you're right. When I was researching pilgrimages from Ukraine to Poland and from Poland to Ukraine, organized by Greek Catholic Church and by Greek Catholics from the bottom up level. I saw how the Greek Catholics, both living in Ukraine and Poland, tried to uh, engage with their ancestral, denominational, even territorial legacies, which have been distanced from them since Second World War and the Soviet era population shifts and all of that. And they are creating some kind of um, a big community beyond the borders. And this is community of memory, which shows the, this tremendously powerful continuity of religion and memory and history and belonging as well. And I think ethnography, um, as your research shows, is really a, a wonderful means by which to show how a community of memory can form and can be sustained over time. I mean, the communities that you study, I mean, they, they have perpetuated themselves over decades. <laughs> and um, they have also managed to forge connections to other religious groups and across national borders. And so I think ethnography in one sense is uniquely suited to um, study those kinds of communities of memory and the feelings of belonging that sustain them. Those are harder for um, other social scientists that might look to um, institutions or, um, or, or more formalized means of both establishing and sustaining communities. Something that is on the top and something that is on the top sometimes just uh, overlook or contradict or just doesn't see what is on the bottom, which is actually the communities and their power and the meanings of belonging they produce. That's exactly right. And I think that those sense of belonging in particular in, in groups that religious groups that perhaps could be called minorities, especially in a context like Ukraine, most of those groups have very, very extensive transnational networks. And so most of those so-called minority groups are really embedded in a global context. And they draw on co-believers, uh, let's say in, in terms of your research, with Greek Catholics um, in, for example, in the state of Pennsylvania, where I live, there's very significant Greek Catholic uh, populations and Greek Catholic monasteries and, and pilgrimages and the like. Um, and that's because of uh, the, the Ukrainian diaspora, the same group that left Ukraine during World War II that you study in, in, in Poland um, are the ones, the same group 
uh, I live among, and they came to the United States at the same time. So those, uh, a minority group can really be embedded in, in, in a global context. And I think that mm -hmm. is what gives a group that numerically is perhaps small, enormous uh, influence. Mm -hmm. You know, I just reminded my uh, participation in a pilgrimage to the so-called mountain of Zyavlinya. It's not far from the Polish-Ukrainian border near the city of Przemyshyn. The local Greek Catholics built a church on the place of the ruined one, which was desecrated and ruined during the communist era by Polish communist authorities. But they didn't uh, build it alone because Ukrainians from USA and Canada were totally involved in this process. They were sending money, they were coming and physically engaging in rebuilding this church and rebuilding the whole pilgrimage site in the forest. So during that pilgrimage, I met Americans with Ukrainian and Polish origin, Canadians, Ukrainian and Polish origin, Greek Catholics, whose parents or grandparents left Poland after the Second World War or in terms of Second World War. And they are coming to that area in Carpathian mountains just to engage. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, I, and there's a town not too far from where I live called Centralia. Mm -hmm. And it has a Greek Catholic church that was built um, by Ukrainians who immigrated right around the turn of the century. So even before the revolution, um, and the, in short, the whole area has been condemned as an ecological uh, catastrophic zone, much like the Chernobyl zone. But there is a Greek Catholic church that remains and remains functional. And they do an annual pilgrimage each year. And similarly, this church draws uh, participants from Ukraine, from all over the United States, people who feel a connection who uh, feel a sense of commitment and engagement. And as you say, a sense of belonging, belonging to this particular faith group and faith tradition and a, a, a national tradition and a national group. And this is all realized via pilgrimage, but it brings Ukrainians or people connected to Ukraine who live in vastly different countries today, uh, brings them all together on the basis of religion. I'm just wondering whether this engagement and this commitment and this sense of belonging is characteristic only to Eastern Rite churches, such as Eastern Catholics or Orthodox, or whether we can talk about some kind of belonging also speaking about Protestants, Pentecostals or Baptists. I know that you did a big research on Pentecostals and Baptists in Ukraine as well, so did you meet any kind of that commitment and that type of engagement with national legacies or ancestral legacies in these communities? Um, a lot of these Protestant churches are different in that um, they are specifically not um, nationally framed or they don't um, root themselves in a particular place. They're much less dependent, once again, in terms of their religious practices and rituals on um, material objects or on specific places. So interestingly, those Protestant groups are far more, um, their missionizing, their outreach, and their forms of religious practice are much more portable. They can be put down in many, many different circumstances. But that's not to say that they don't um, 
forge then, they just think on different terms and for more global terms in terms of uh, creating and forging communities of co-believers. Mm -hmm. It's just less oriented or less anchored in a specific place. But once again, I think ethnography, even among those groups, can show the extent to which um, being a minority can take many, many different forms. In other words, if we think of being a minority as being um, in a position, uh, uh, an unfavorable or a potentially vulnerable, unfavorable, potentially vulnerable position in terms of hierarchies of power, um, not just religious affiliation, but even things like gender, um, ethnic identity, racial identities, all of these other um, attributes can um, bring forth a sense of being a minority. So even when researching, let's say, a minority group, uh, which certainly, let's say, Protestants, um, as you were saying, for Greek Catholics, they're numerically, and they're less than 2% of the population. So that's a very, uh, numerically, a very small uh, percentage of the Ukrainian population. But yet, um, precisely because they don't have this national caste, they tend to be very open to uh, ethnic and racial minorities within Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And also, um, they're not as patriarchal, although they they are situated within Ukraine, so they pick up the local uh, understandings of gender relations. Um, and so uh, what constitutes a minority uh, in, in, in all its different forms uh, is illustrated in, in these communities as well. Mm -hmm. But they too, um, uh, especially it was very particularly evident in some of the charismatic communities that clearly see themselves as a global phenomenon. And very often they will, they always would fly the Ukrainian flag, but they would have a multitude of flags from many, many different countries uh, right within um, you know, the church setting. So they're clearly trying to situate themselves as a global faith. And they're bringing these Ukrainian communities into a global arena of believers. It's a different kind of a community. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. I can remind only several cases when I saw Pentecostals and Baptists praying together with Greek Catholics or Roman Catholics or even Muslims. That was the case during Maidan because they were all praying together in an ecumenical prayer. And after that, sometimes there were organized ecumenical prayers in St. Sophia Cathedral in Kiev when all of them, they were invited, like Pentecostals and Baptists for sure. I don't know about other groups, Lutheran church as well. And so showing kind of devotion or commitment to Ukrainian state because they all were praying for peace in Ukraine through all these eight years. I would even go back to the Orange Revolution in 2004. Yes, there was right. even all of these moments of crisis. I, I think in these moments of crisis, even though charismatics and Pentecostals might speak about being uh, within a global community of believers, we all live in a particular place. And it, in a moment of crisis, it comes out that these communities are anchored in Ukraine and their allegiance is to their home, which is in Ukraine. And I think that's why um, during these crisis moments, whether it be 2004, 2014, during the Maidan, um, mm -hmm. these groups have shown themselves to be clearly on the side of Ukraine. 
And mm-hmm. I think that um, that is certainly, of course, has continued to be demonstrated uh, since the, the full invasion uh, of Ukraine um, in February of this year, 2022. Mm-hmm. Yes, I don't, I don't know what about Pentecostals or Baptists because I'm still closer to Greek Catholic communities because all my former respondents, they were checking each other and checking me how we are all after 24th of February. And um, when I came to Poland in the end of March this year, actually all those former respondents and friends these days from Greek Catholic and Orthodox Polish communities, they were fully engaged in helping Ukrainian refugees, like 100% engaged. In all the places I know, starting from the little border towns of Przemysl or Helm, and in with Warsaw and Gdańsk and Western Poland, and they created such a huge network of volunteers and helpers and uh, interpreters, whatever, just to be there for help. And when I talked, to my friends from Greek Catholic community in particular, they all were born in Poland. They are Polish citizens. They maybe have uh, this mixed Polish-Ukrainian origin and they are all bilingual. They would say, this is our war too. This is not only your war in Ukraine, this is our war too, because we belong there. Our ancestors were born on the borderland Carpathians or in Ukraine, we are Greek Catholics. This is Ukrainian church. We are here for you. And that was so overwhelmingly touching, you know, this belonging and this help and this devotion to Ukraine as well. Yeah, I, I think at this particular moment, especially this year after the, the, the invasion, um, I think there's a a broad understanding that what you what Ukraine is fighting for are certain democratic values, which um, in some parts of the world, these democratic values are held very dear. So in that sense, there is this sense of allegiance with yeah. Ukraine. Um, and for example, just uh, basic civil liberties that in Ukraine, they would like to have a state with legal uh, guarantees of certain civil liberties, which many, many um, people and certainly many religiously observant people wish to have the kinds of uh, legal guarantees to practice their religion in a freedom of conscience. And so there is a sense of of, of feeling an allegiance to Ukraine. Um, I think also Ukrainians have been remarkably adept at using social media and the like and I'm thinking in particular of your writings as well, that in a very, very animated, engaged way, bring us all into the war. And I think this is really the first war where um, you know we're all in the bomb shelters with you. Um, you've brought us there. And I think um, this is a tremendously good thing because we all know that war is, a, is always bad. And once again, we are, you're making by bringing everyone into the bomb shelters and he, everyone hearing the sirens, you are um, reminding absolutely everyone once again that war is to be avoided at all costs. And it's um, 
reaffirms that basic understanding that one needs to stand for peace as a basic human value. At the basic human value all over the world. Yes, that was uh, that was what Adam Michnik wrote on the first day of war. We are all Ukrainians now. <laughs> That's exactly right. And that yeah, that many intellectuals, including you, repeated after him that yes, we are all Ukrainians. And uh, in the if, same go ahead. And if Ukrainians are a minority, then we all are a minority fighting for democratic values and for existence, actually, of democracy. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure Ukrainians really are a minority. I mean, within what context, you know, there's, they, I mean, they're facing a, 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 a more powerful foe, but they're not facing it alone. Um, one of the things that I've been researching has been the development of the whole military chaplaincy, mm -hmm. that this is one arena in which Greek Catholics and Protestant groups, for example, have been particularly active, um, up to and including uh, changing some of their basic religious doctrines. Many of these Protestant communities um, advocated pacifism and nonviolent um, uh service to state institutions, including the army. And many have revised that view and have taken up arms, not just among Protestants and, and Greek Catholics. Um, one can also cite certain Orthodox theologians and, and other clergy that also have taken up arms. But the, the war um, uh, has remade uh, what constitutes um, uh, particular religious groups, what constitutes a minority and uh, and how a minority group interacts with the majority. Uh, when it comes to the military chaplaincy, it's these the transnational networks of these um, numerically smaller religious groups that have access to um, the, let's say the traditions among military chaplains in the US, which are largely driven by Protestants or the, uh, the Greek Catholic church via the Roman Catholic Church and its tremendous um, teachings on the social doctrine. And so there are all, these are other kinds of influences that have quickly kicked in to shape things like the military chaplaincy, which has then remade not just um, the chaplaincy as an institution within the armed forces, but has created chaplaincies in other public institutions, everything from medical establishments, to educational institutions, uh, to social service provision. So you can see then the tremendous import of what could be called religious minorities on the majority of the population uh, within Ukraine these days. And also I'm referring to your last point, I'm thinking about uh... Ukrainian Greek Catholic University and the free opportunities for studying they provided since the start of war, free online lectures, free courses, uh, free uh, just access to books from their library and all of that. And rising from a so-called minority, they are now one of the best universities in Ukraine and not only in Ukraine and they are providing a great educational support and spiritual support, whatever, to many people, not only oh, Greek, Greek Catholics. 
No, that's exactly right. I mean, it's a wonderful institution. I was a Fulbright scholar there just right as, as COVID was uh, dawning. Um, it's a fantastic university um, that has a great deal to offer and that it has a tremendously international student body. Um, and that's one, inst that's one instance where um, a religiously affiliated public institution then um, creates a certain presence for uh, a religious minority that is quite powerful and prevalent and influential. It differs a bit from um, subsequent later research that I've done among Orthodox and specifically among those who prefer who, who preferred prior to the war to call themselves just Orthodox or prosto pravoslavni. And they were previously seen as a minority as the scholarly and popular focus was inevitably on religious communities that were either seen as pro-Ukrainian, being part of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, or prior to that, the uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the P Kiev Patriarchate, or either, in, in, put in crudely political terms, pro-Russian, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate. And the focus was specifically on those kinds of institutions. But ethnographically, you can, you can uncover really what is the majority uh, among Orthodox believers, these people who prefer, in Ukraine, who preferred prior to the war, at least, to consider themselves just Orthodox. They perhaps were non-believing, maybe even non-practicing in a formal sense, but they subscribed to uh, a faith tradition, which is what made them Orthodox. So in a way, they were really the majority, even though they were dismissed as not, I would say, not even just as a minority, but even as kind of an invisible, unimportant minority. But it turns out, especially once again, under, under crisis conditions, as we saw mm -hmm. prior to the invasion, that um, what can be an invisible, dismissed minority really can become not just a majority, but even a powerful majority and really remake the religious landscape uh, in Ukraine. Yeah, and change change social networks as well, I think. That, yes, that's right. I mean, I think in one sense, these sort of prostopravoslavni, these just Orthodox, they were sort of hiding in plain sight. They mm -hmm. were, their, um, their uh, allegiance to Orthodox mm -hmm. traditions was, or Eastern Christian, I should say, even mm -hmm. traditions, was so normativized, um, so naturalized that people ceased to even look at them critically. They've even ceased to see them, even at the same moment that this kind of prostoporavoslavny um, stance helped shape um, the aesthetics of public space in Ukraine, helped allow for the expansion, for example, I mentioned chaplains just a moment ago, for the insertion of, of chaplains of a variety of different faith groups um, into public institutions. So, but this is the kind of thing that I think ethnography can help uncover because much like your communities of memory, this is um, a more subtle, a more amorphous, but very, very real and very present uh, kind of a sense of identity and belonging and allegiance. And in critical political moments, um, that can take on enormous relevance. 
Yes, and also in critical moments uh, like 2014 and nowadays, uh, people need some consolation. And just what can I what I can observe that more and more people go to church, like summer 2014 and this summer, I can observe really a lot of people in churches. Despite Kyiv is half empty these days, but still there are a lot of people in churches. And I'm sure that if you will ask some of them, they will say you that they are just orthodox. They just believe. They just have faith in God and whatever. And they just uh, came to any church just to have some consolation or maybe some support or to do some habitual rituals like lighting a candle or writing this note as a for someone who is in the army or in the city under siege. So this is... I think one of the things that religion in general offers, whether it's Greek Catholics or Orthodox or Protestants, is that it allows people to feel connected both um, in the present to people wherever they might be located, like you said, in, in cities under siege or people abroad, if you're in Poland and looking to people in Ukraine, or if you're in the US looking to people in Ukraine. So it helps sort of forge horizontal connections over space, across space, I should say, as well as connections over time. In other words, for one's ancestors, if you're in your own community of memory. So people who lived during World War II or even prior to that. I mean, my, my interest in history stemmed from the connections people might have felt to certain historical moments or historical figures or certain events. Um, but that's a much more uh, cognitive way of conceiving of these connections. Uh, religion provides a sort of an emotionally charged way to feel connected to people over time. And I think that that's one thing that religious communities with their rituals uh, can offer people. And this is of course, particularly valued when one feels um, especially vulnerable and threatened and frightened uh, during wartime not feeling alone, feeling the connection and the strength from people over time and people across space. Mm -hmm. This can be very, very sustaining and uh, give some sense of courage and comfort. Yes. And I think also places matter. This place is animated with divine power, because uh, for some time people... Uh, we're not able to go and pray to some particular place or church or cathedral. So it was very dangerous. It's still dangerous, but still people need to be reconnected with some places and spaces and go to Volodymyrsky Cathedral, let's say, in central area of Kiev, because it was just crowded recently. <laughs> and it was not some you know, particular big holiday or whatever, but it was crowded. And I thought that Maybe people are coming here because this place is meaningful. It's old, it's Namolinemista, this place animated with divine power, and people just need to go and stay there and pray there. And um, there are many religious objects where under siege, and uh, Svetohirska Lavra in eastern Ukraine, for example. So, one of these places animated with power and places that attracted many Orthodox pilgrimages. 
So um, people will need to come back and engage with this place when it when the war will be over or when they will be able to go there. I've been thinking lately, especially in terms of Svetihirska Lavra, how under conditions of war and conquest that it's precisely these kinds of places that are meaningful, whether it's a Namolinemisa or whether it's a Lavra or you know, a particular monastery with a certain status, desecrating or destroying those sacred places, those sacred objects is a form of conquest. And, yes. and it's an effective form of conquest. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, the Lavra, uh, whether it's deliberately been targeted or whether it's inadvertently been targeted, why, why it fails to elicit outrage on the part of Orthodox believers elsewhere. They understand that um, destroying these places that are meaningful, that provide comfort are, um, that's a form of conquest and it's an effective form of conquest because it um, it, it, mm -hmm. it demoralizes and weakens those for whom those places are meaningful. Yeah, and we know many examples from history of this conquest and uh, changing of power and one state wanted to conquer the other, the desecration of sanctuaries was the first thing to do. Right. Yeah. It's a powerful expression of, of, of power and mm -hmm. domination. Um, and it's a different kind, it's a different understanding of majority, so to speak, or minority. Um, it is. It shows the extent to which hierarchies of power have been reversed. Mm -hmm. And it has nothing to do with numerical presence or, or, or anything of that nature. It's just a pure expression of power mm -hmm. and influence. And yes, here also we have all these persecutions of um, Protestants and Donbass area, Pentecostals and Baptists and uh, pastors that uh, were just taken from their places of living and tortured somewhere in the basements and, uh, um, well, all that. That, that area um, was very much of a center of, of, um, of Protestant uh, infrastructure, religious infrastructure. There was a Christian university in, in Donetsk and uh, a publishing house and, and uh, seminaries and all kinds of other um, sustaining forms of infrastructure for Protestant communities. And so, of course, if, if certain religious groups take on a national uh, caste, even if the, the national caste is in the sense of Ruski Mir, um, then there's no place for those that are Protestant. They're not only apostates, they're even traitors. They're, they have betrayed not only their faith, but they've betrayed their people. And this is where religion can play a decidedly negative role in, um, in conflicts. And it can interject a certain um, uh, kind of shrill rhetoric. Uh, criticism can become blasphemy. Um, uh, disobedience can become uh, being a traitor. Uh, death can become martyrdom and the like. Um, and this is where I think, um, unfortunately, uh, 
the license to be particularly um, cruel and violent and resort to torture, um, for example, of re religious minority groups in, in Eastern Ukraine um, can be, mm, I don't want to say justified, but in the minds of those who are, who are perpetuating and doing this torture can be found, uh, can be understood to be acceptable because these people are not just, as I mentioned, um, apostates who have turned their backs on orthodoxy, but they've even turned their backs on um, their people, so to speak. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of suffering in all these groups. And uh, thinking about suffering, all of them, Protestants and Greek Catholics and to some extent Orthodox, despite being a so-called majority, <clears throat> I was thinking about the role of ethnographers, anthropologists, when we do research these communities. Uh, do we have a right to interfere and to help people with this suffering, to not to let this suffering increase, maybe to make it less, to help, to engage on, do we have to keep distance, whatever, all these ethical questions. Because during my field work in Poland among Ukrainian Greek Catholics, uh, they were just asking to write about them because they were feeling through the whole history of the communist period in Poland, they were feeling uh, neglected, abandoned, uh, nobody was interested in them because the church was banned and uh, their Ukrainian community was banned as well. So they were asking me from the position of suffering, would you write about us? Would you go back to Ukraine and write there that we are here, we are Ukrainians, we do belong, so can you help us? It was a very tricky position because uh, I couldn't answer all their expectations, you know. I couldn't go to somewhere to president or government and say to them, please pay attention on that diaspora report. <laughs> that this is something that I've encountered quite a bit myself in doing research. I mean, anthropologists generally um, promise their interlocutors anonymity. And so they don't, mm -hmm. um, they use pseudonyms. This is a standard practice. Mm -hmm. um, you give a representative portrait of the person, but you don't, um, say specifically who the person is. And I've had many people in the same spirit that you just articulated say, oh no, use my name. I want my name to be there. <laughs> um, I, mean, I want them to know that, that we exist and I want, uh, I want people to know, uh, you know, that I think that. And, um, uh, and I think um, there's a fine line between, I do think um, there's always ethical obligations to those that you work with. Um, I think there's an overriding uh, obligation to do no harm, as we say, that is constant, that is always there. And the question is then how to not um, do any harm. And um, I can think of several different circumstances in sort of before the war. I mean, when looking at religious, uh, especially doing research among religious uh, communities and you find individuals or clerical leaders who sometimes espouse views that I personally might uh, not endorse. Uh, rather than condemning them, I've always tried to uh, understand why and how they might have come to think the way they do. Why does this make sense to them? Why, uh, you know, something as simple as um, 
you know, a secondary status for women or uh, a blanket condemnation of homosexuality as sinful or a whole variety of other issues. Why might people come to think that way? Um, I've always tried to provide an, an analysis, a genealogy, if you will, of their views, mm -hmm. which is not to endorse those views, but nonetheless to try to explain why a person might feel that way. And so I think there's an ethical obligation to do that. I think the war has really changed everything. I think when there is such unbridled suffering, and I would say this is a suffering that certainly anyone who lives within Ukraine is experiencing. I don't think you have to be in Mariupol or Chernihiv or any of these directly shelled cities to feel highly vulnerable and highly uh, mm -hmm. afraid. Uh, I think all Ukrainians, and by extension, then anybody outside of Ukraine who cares about Ukraine or Ukrainians, um, I think has an obligation to do what they can to intervene, in fact, to not remain neutral, to not be just um, uh, an observer, but to really to participate in observation is the methodology of anthropology. I think now it needs to be less observation and far more participation um, in, in pursuit of, I think, a, the goal of peace and to cease the wanton killing of other human beings. I think this is, a, this is the overriding ethical uh, imperative today. As a Ukrainian and someone who is sitting in Kiev now, I'm very grateful for your words, Kathy. Yes, sometimes uh, when I observe the world, I just simply can't understand, <laughs> can't understand why this had happened because the humanity has gone through so many wars and learned nothing, unfortunately. So yes, it's, it's a crime to stay aside these days. So engagement and empathy, it's what we need because I think that this war happened because of the total entire failure of empathy, humans to each other. I think that's always a condition to make war and to make murder possible, This, especially murder on this kind of a scale. I think you're right about that. But I think people like you and others who write about the war um, remind us of the horrors of war and how it that there is an ethical imperative uh, uh, for any person with a moral compass to try to stop this kind of slaughter, be it in Ukraine, be it Yemen, uh, mm -hmm. Afghanistan, Iraq, wherever wherever it might be. Mm -hmm. There needs to be respect for human life and a priority put on resolving conflicts with dialogue, not with the barrel of a gun. Let's try continue writing about it because writing is our weapon in this war as well. That's exactly it's... right. And it can be a powerful weapon as well. Mm -hmm. And like Mishnik said, we are all Ukrainians now. <laughs> Thank you. But speaking about writing, what can we tell other people to, to read among, among our writings? Should we mention some of our production? Of course. There was, uh, you and I have edited a book together in Ukrainian that looks at lived religion. These kinds of forms of religious practice that very often um, are not, um, 
not always institutionally grounded and as a result uh, aren't always recognized. And um, so that's one volume that looks at forms of lived religion throughout uh, Eastern Europe and Eurasia. Um, there are a whole uh, plethora of research uh, of mm -hmm. resources on our uh, website where you and I are part of a, a working group on lived religion. And that website is um, www.wglivedreligion.org. That's wglivedreligion, one word, .org. And there's a plethora of interviews and other podcasts um, and publications and upcoming conferences and the, and, uh, and the like that might be of interest to, um, to some of our listeners. Yeah, thank you. And I think the last thing, uh, the anthropological blog you did when the war has started engaging me and other scholars from Ukraine to contribute. I think this is also a good source. Yes. That's true. That's the cultural anthropology hotspot yeah. <laughs> where there's um, snapshots of war mm -hmm. and how both it gives both an insider and an outsider, if you will, uh, perspective on the war, how different people uh, within Ukraine, within Russia and within other countries of the world have experienced the war. Um, and this that that led to several other uh, blogs and Internet based publications that once again sort of use words to help uh, help us understand the war and in particular the tragedy of this war. Thank you, Kathy, for your engagement and for having this shared time together and shared talk. And thank you to you, Yulia, for, for maintaining courage and, and a, a keen eye and a sharp mind to record all of this, to bring us uh, all to the war with you. And I thank Olena for, uh, for the invitation to be able to discuss these issues. Thank you, Cassie. Thank you, Yulia. We will definitely include the links that you mentioned in the description of the podcast. So those uh, who are interested would be able to uh, access those resources. Thank you once again.